0: We want to welcome you to Plum Creek Chapel this morning as we continue our uh, look at ahead, uh, a biblical overview of the end times and we are kind of slowly grinding to a close here after more than a year working our way through that 16% of the Bible that represents unfulfilled prophecy so uh, so much uh, to come. Uh, in, uh, in terms of God's plan of the ages, and we certainly eagerly look forward to all that, uh, that lies ahead, uh, and especially as we're kind of talking now about uh, the kingdom that is to come and all of the characteristics of that, which we'll get to here in just a minute. But I was thinking this morning as we pulled into the uh, parking lot, my daughter Abby uh, put her sunglasses that she had been wearing back in the car, didn't need them in here, and I thought, you know, it, the future is so bright when you look at it through the biblical narrative, we all should need sunglasses, I think, just to, to handle the brightness of it. It it looks pretty discouraging now, a lot going on in this world, a lot of negative things happening, a lot of unsettling things happening, but uh, a better day is coming, amen? And that's really what Bible prophecy is all about. So just a couple of quick announcements So, from over the past week, of course, the uh, the material that we've been covering is in uh, my book, What Lies Ahead, and those of you here can pick one up from the resource table out in the lobby. If you're watching us by livestream or online, you can always go to knotbyworks.org and, uh, and pick that up there. Uh, we're heading into our travel season in May and June and July. And uh, next weekend, I'll be out of pocket in Wisconsin speaking at a conference there, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So for those of you here at Plum Creek, next Sunday, is going to be the Mike and Mike show. uh, Because Mike Huber is going to preach, and Mike Quinlan is going to lead Sunday school uh, next week. So we're looking forward to that. And those of you that don't know Mike Huber, he's got a long-standing connection to Plum Creek Chapel, used to be the president of the Berean Fellowship, and just a great man of God. I know you'll appreciate hearing from him. So we won't have live stream next Sunday, neither at the 9 o'clock or the 10.30 uh, time slot. And then I'll be... uh, Back here in Colorado, May 6th and 7th, that's a Friday and Saturday up at the Spring uh, Conference in uh, Fort Collins, and the topic is pretty intriguing there, Angels, Demons, and You. And so I'm actually speaking last among that slate there of uh, colleagues, and uh, so I guess they want me to kind of clean up all the heresy that's been poured forth (laughs) Friday and Saturday, and I'll tie it all together. But uh, if you've got nothing else to do on... Next, on that weekend, May 6th and 7th, I encourage you to make the trip out to Fort Collins. And all of this is available at the Not by Works website. And you can click on it and find out more details there. And then uh, finally, the next up would be May 13th and 14th. Again, a Friday, Saturday. This is in Tulsa at the Mid-America Prophecy Conference. And I'll be speaking twice there as I do every year. And this year, my two topics are, uh, the first one is whose fingerprints are on the founding of our country. And the second one is uh, uh, Russia, Ukraine, and the New World Order. So those are things to look forward to there. That's a big conference, always a great time. And again, you can uh, click on the registration button at Not By Works to find out more about that. Been a busy week podcast-wise. Tuesday was our regular uh, standing podcast on the Christian Underground News Network. And uh, as I mentioned, Wednesday night, uh, the topic was Ophidian Obfuscating Subterfuge. So it's worth Watch, listening to the podcast just to figure out what those three words mean. Uh, so we, uh, I, I labeled it that because the host, Curtis Chamberlain of Christian Underground News Network, used those words at various times throughout the podcast, and I kept having to interrupt him and say, what did you just say? And figure it out. Uh, actually, that's not true. I just secretly looked it up online while I was doing the podcast, so I looked like I knew what he was talking about. But anyway, that's uh, a great podcast um, actually addressing... What some of you may have seen going around the, the viral uh, documentary about uh, by Dr. Brian Artis the, uh, about uh, the snake venom and all of that. So we kind of took a balanced approach to that and talked about that. And then on Monday last week was my monthly appearance on Stand Up for the Truth and uh, David Fiorazzo, who's been in this church, we've been honored to have him speak here. A great interviewer, really always enjoyed talking to him. The time goes by so fast. It's a one-hour live show, but man, I blink and it's over. So that's another great. Opportunity to uh, kind of check in on what's going on with Not By Works, and of course that uh, last Monday we talked about my latest book, Spirit of the Antichrist, and those are still available out on the table uh, or um, at the Not By Works website. So with that, uh, let's dive in. This is uh, our 54th uh, lesson on Bible prophecy, but it's our second week uh, talking about uh, the. um, Oh, we were not on the screen, were we? Well, I won't start over. You 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 heard everything I said. I'm not sure the visuals really added much to it. Although, you do have to sorry for you that are live streaming because they saw it, but uh, for those of you that were live streaming, uh, I want I've got to I mean, for those of you that are here, I got to show you that's the graphic for the Ophidian Obfuscating Subterfuge. So, you got to watch that one uh, for sure or listen to that one for sure. Okay, so we talked about um, The millennium versus the eternal state. We went through several contrasts between the two. And then we last week, or was it last week? No, two weeks ago. Last week was Easter. uh, We started by looking at some geographical characteristics of the millennium. And the first one we looked at is the increase in territory. And so we talked about how the promised land, as outlined in Scripture, has never been fully inhabited by God's chosen nation, Israel. In fact, what you see on the screen there is modern-day borders of Israel in red, and then the blue represents the boundaries based on Genesis 15 of the, uh, of the ultimate land of Israel. And so uh, clearly, uh, either God was lying or there's a future for national Israel. So uh, we kind of believe the latter is the case. So uh, someday when Christ comes back uh, on the Mount of Olives to uh, establish the long-awaited, unconditionally promised kingdom to Israel, this will be the boundaries of the capital, you know how we, we talk about capital cities now within nation states, well obviously in the kingdom we go back to a globalist uh, arrangement with one king ruling the entire world in perfect peace and justice and that's uh, Jesus Christ, God's Son and our Savior. So I've actually been working on uh, some of the material for this conference coming up next weekend in Wisconsin, I'll speak six times plus a Q&A. Uh, And we're going to be talking about a lot of things, but one of the ones that I'm going to go through is something that we talked about here last summer, so almost a year ago now, and that is God's plan of the ages as it relates to globalism versus nationalism. And God created the earth with a globalist uh, arrangement. It was just Adam and Eve, one world, God was the leader, and it was just a different dispensation. Over time, as we get after the flood, you find it shifting into a nationalistic society, and God... Uh, creates nations, and you see the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. And that's where we still are living today. Uh, But God's plan of the ages is for it to revert back to globalism, first under the tyrannical regime of the Antichrist for seven years, and then ultimately by the king of kings himself, uh, Jesus Christ. So right now, we are, according to God's divine design in scripture, we are living in a nationalist uh, world, and therefore we should fight for national sovereignty. We should not cede our national sovereignty to a satanic group of uh, global elites that are seeking to take over the world and usher in the new world order and put their man in place, the antichrist we know that will happen biblically but we also know that God is not willing that any should perish but that all come to repentance, he wants all the world to be saved and so we don't have his timetable and we ought to fight for freedom and fight for um, the rights that we have Uh, here, the inalienable rights, as long as God allows. But at some point, as we've been talking about in this study, uh, God is going to rescue the church before the great and terrible day of the Lord. does not mean that he's going to rescue us before things get bad, as some people mistakenly say. Things are bad and have been for 2,000 years for many Christians. In fact, there are more martyrs today in the church than at any other time in human history. So anybody that thinks that belief in a rapture, which the Bible definitely teaches, somehow suggests that we're going to escape suffering, is reading a different Bible and is really naive. Uh, God has not called us to not suffer, in fact, uh, you know, quite clearly Jesus in the upper room just hours before He was betrayed promised that in this world we will have tribulation. Paul would later say in his last epistle that he wrote, just days or perhaps months before he was martyred, uh, that uh, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You see this again and again. Peter talks about it. So certainly, if the Lord tarries is coming, and we don't shift into the end times anytime soon, we could be facing terrible suffering even in this own country. We've been blessed not to face it, although certainly many of our freedoms are being stripped away, especially in the last two years, but nothing compared to what many of our brothers and sisters in Christ have faced throughout uh, the world over the last 2,000 years, but When we say the the, the rapture rescues us from this present evil age, as Galatians 1 4 puts it, that doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. All it means is that when the 70th week of Daniel, that final seven-year period that Jesus talked about, that Daniel talked about, that John talks about in the book of Revelation, when it begins and the Antichrist takes the helm, that's when we will be gone. Clearly, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians that we are not going to be here during the wrath of God when it's poured out on earth. But after that seven-year period, Christ will come back, and that's when we will see, and by the way, we'll be coming back with him, Revelation 19, 11 to 15, and that's when we will see the kingdom take shape, and, and Israel will be the, the capital country, uh, if you want to call it that. There will still be nations in the kingdom. They just won't have sovereignty. There will be one, a one-world system with Jesus himself uh, ruling over it. So then we looked at uh, five other uh, Actually, six other uh, geographical characteristics. Actually, I think we left off with number six, so we'll get to number seven here in a second. But very quickly, topographical changes. Literally, the, the topography in and around Israel will change as the Mount of Olives is split in two. Jerusalem becomes the center of the world's worship. We're going to talk more about that this morning. Uh, Jerusalem itself is enlarged in cor- corresponding with the expansive uh, increase in territory. We talked about how Israel's, Jerusalem's name has changed. One of those, if you recall, was Beulah, uh, meaning married. And several different times, the prophets spoke of when Christ comes back. You know, this is or when Christ comes to inaugurate the kingdom from their perspective. They didn't always see a, a, a hard distinction between His first advent and His second advent. Uh, and when you get to the New Testament and the details are explained in greater detail, that's when you begin to see a inter-advent age uh, like jesus talked about in luke 19 when he said you know the king's going to go away for a long time to receive the kingdom while he's gone take your mina and do something with it be good stewards when he comes back you'll give an account for it so as jesus earthly ministry went on and the closer he got to calvary the more explicit he made it that uh, look the kingdom's not going to be inaugurated immediately there's going to be a delay uh, and we're living in that delay uh, today uh, so, uh, but when from the Old Testament prophets' perspective, when they spoke of the kingdom, they talked about that's when Israel's or Jerusalem's name would be changed. And then, of course, uh, where we left off last week, the Jews are going to be regathered into the land, uh, and that's going to be a supernatural uh, regathering. Uh, they Jesus very plainly said that when he comes back in Matthew twenty-four, uh, he will send his angels uh, to gather his elect Israel back into. The land and several old testament uh, prophets talk about this uh, it uh, i don't believe has begun now many good uh, scholars who do understand scripture in a literal grammatical historical way as we do would differ they say perhaps this uh, the beginning of the dry bones prophecy in ezekiel 38 has already begun because of 1948. I definitely believe 1948 is prophetically significant, May 15th when after World War II Israel became a nation again for the first time in over a thousand years. Uh, No question that's setting the stage for the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, but the return that we see happening historically in our lifetime, I mean not in my lifetime, but in some of you old people's lifetime uh, in 1948, uh, that I don't believe fits the biblical narrative because the, the return that... Christ talked about that the Old Testament prophets talked about is one in belief when having accepted their Messiah they come back. Uh, clearly, though there are certainly believers in uh, Israel. Let's be clear about that: Messianic Jews. Not every Jew, and certainly not the political leadership, has believed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins. They've not believed the gospel. So, uh, so. But either way, certainly we acknowledge that uh, the reestablishment of Israel as a nation in 1948 is probably the biggest sign that we are living in the last of the last days. It is a setting of the stage. If there's going to be an Israel and a Jerusalem and a rebuilt temple for the Antichrist to desecrate, as Jesus said he would, uh, and as Daniel the prophet predicted he would, we've got to have an Israel. And um, so we believe that what happened... Uh, 1948 is significant i just don't consider that to be the regathering that scripture talks about all right with that let's look at the final geographic characteristic and that of course follows naturally from a lot of what we've been talking about and that is the healing of israel's desolate condition the healing of the land so we read about this in the great new covenant passage of ezekiel 36 Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins will, shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. In other words, just as the glory of the temple will return, just as the glory of God in the person and work of Christ will come back on the earth, so too will the glory of Israel's uh, land. And if you've ever been to Israel, I have not, but many of my friends and colleagues have. Uh, you know, if you've seen pictures, you know that you know it looks pretty desolate in certain places, and you think, wow, why did God pick this area to be his holy land? But he did, and, and we're going to see why in the kingdom. Uh, and, of course, there are uh, you know a wealth of natural resources there even today. But it says, uh, uh, so they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, notice the all caps there, remember that refers to uh, Yahweh, the personal name for God, the one true God, the I Am, they will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. So any questions about any of the geographical characteristics before we move on to some of the social characteristics? characteristics. I should have put them all on one slide, but in any event, it's the one we just talked about, healing of the land's desolate condition, or these other six. Any comments or questions? Yes. Why would it be fortified? Why would it be fortified? Uh-huh. Yeah, probably, uh, I mean, I'm just guessing all we can do is say what God's Word says, but, um, you know, there will be at the end of the millennium, a final battle, which is called Gog and Magog, not the same battle, you know, time-wise as the Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39, but Satan's going to be released from prison at the end of the millennium, thousand years, and there'll be one final battle, so perhaps it's in preparation for that, or perhaps it's just a testimony that even though Christ is ruling with a rod of iron, it's just a way of signaling to all the other nations that God is strong and mighty and, and, and so forth. But good question. Anybody else? Doesn't fortified also mean, not necessarily mean necessarily militarized. It means it means beefed up or reprovisioned or, you know, yeah. like if you're taking a fortified vitamin, for example, you, it just has more good stuff in it. Yes. It's yeah. not going to make you... Yeah, so the question, you. I don't remember if I repeated <laughs> it the first time, but talking about why would Ezekiel speak of, The land being fortified if Christ is on the throne and it's a time of unprecedented peace. And then uh, Gary kind of talked about how fortified doesn't necessarily have to mean militarily. It just means strong and and mighty and so forth. And that's kind of what I was getting at with my second speculative answer. But uh, good questions. All right. So let's move now into some social characteristics of the millennium. First of all, we will see for the first time universal knowledge of the Lord. And so... Uh, If you recall, in this present age, that is the church age, and we know that as a matter of theological fact, you can prove that, that the church began on the day of Pentecost by comparing Scripture with Scripture, that the Great Commission is is our marching order, okay? We are to go in all the world and make disciples. However, there's no promise in Scripture that we will reach every corner of the earth prior uh, to the rapture. The rapture, of course, is imminent. Uh, We've talked about the imminency of the rapture before, which means it could happen at any time. The Bible clearly teaches imminency. So really, any time in the last 2,000 years, the rapture could have happened. Um, If the Lord tarries His coming, it's certainly possible, and that's our goal, to make sure that every person on earth has heard the gospel. But there's no such guarantee in Scripture. There is, however, a guarantee that prior to the return of Christ to establish the kingdom, and certainly as we're going to see in these verses, during the kingdom, everyone on earth will know of the Lord. So I don't think I have this verse on the screen, but remember Jesus in the uh, Olivet Discourse that Wednesday night before the Upper Room uh, uh, event on Thursday night of Passion Week, He promised in Matthew 24:13 that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And, of course, he's talking about that seven-year tribulation. The entire Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, and Luke 21, all deals with that sermon uh, from uh, the Mount of Olives that is a, relating to the future seven-year tribulation. The parallels are uh, undeniable between Revelation and here. And, plus, it's prior to the church. The church hadn't even been established yet. The rapture hadn't even been mentioned yet. Um, this is all about Israel and Daniel's promised seven-year period leading up to the return of of Christ. And so when he says the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come, some have mistaken that to mean now. And so therefore they say, well, the rapture can't happen today because they're still unreached people groups. They're misunderstanding the context. This is during the seven-year tribulation. And it's during that time that the 144,000 missionaries, at least at the beginning of the tribulation, will have the task of going to every corner of the earth, making sure everyone's heard the gospel. Over time, during that seven years, as more and more people get saved, of course, many of them will be martyred. We read about that in Revelation 7. But the ones that aren't martyred will become uh, evangelists teaming up with 144,000 and will continue to spread the gospel so that by the time Christ comes back, everyone has heard the gospel. And then, you know, Christ comes back. uh, The Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. The uh, Satan himself is bound up in prison and then the kingdom commences. And uh, let's see if I can put that on the screen just to have a frame of reference. Um, once the kingdom starts, let's see, this would be... So we're talking about this section right here in, uh, in yellow. Once the king Christ comes back, then Daniel talks about a 75-day preparation period but then the official kickoff party uh, that banqueting supper that Jesus talked about for example in places like Matthew 8 when he said people will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham Isaac and Jacob that starts 75 days after his return and that's the official commencement of the messianic kingdom uh the first thousand years of it are on this old earth and so during that time everyone will know of uh of the lord And and that's what we're going to see in these uh, social characteristics. So it'll be evangelism will be will take on a little bit of a different uh, concept. Instead of you know apologetics and trying to talk about Jesus as being the Son of God and trying to kind of frame it all in the in the context of there is a God, you're you're a sinner who needs to be reconciled to a holy God, that kind of thing. It will be everyone will know him they'll see him sitting on the throne in, in Jerusalem giving the State of the World address every January on CNN or whatever, uh, or Fox News more likely. But anyway, um, <laughs> then, then that you'll, you'll say to someone who's not a believer, because remember, eventually, over the time, there will be unbelievers, people born into the kingdom. And like everyone, they'll be born dead in their trespasses and sin, Ephesians 2.1, and they'll have to be saved. And so um, you'll just say, hey, you know, if you want to be saved, trust in that guy. The one over there in Jerusalem. If you'll believe in Him, you can have eternal life. Because He died for your sins and rose from the dead. So everyone will know the Lord. Let's look at a couple of passages. Uh, Isaiah 11, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Isaiah promised. Jeremiah 31, another new covenant passage. No more shall every man teach his neighbor. So this is clearly one of the biggest reasons why contextually the New Covenant is not in play today. You know we had during the Dark Ages we had the Roman Catholic Church telling us they are the Kingdom and this is the New Covenant, it's all done. But when you read Scripture in its literal grammatical historical context, you can't have a New Covenant in place where God says you don't need to teach your neighbor and Jesus saying go and teach your neighbor. That's a conflict and God can't contradict himself. So the church is a foreshadowing, a foretaste of the glory to come. There are many similarities in the present age to what life will be like in the kingdom. But it has not been inaugurated yet. Um, no more shall every man teach his neighbor. And every man his brother. Saying know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them. Says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And their sins I will remember no more. So any questions about. Uh, the universal knowledge of the Lord. Or comments or thoughts. We are going to see natural reproduction. So again. Uh, The church and Old Testament saints Will be in our glorified bodies This mortal will have put on immortality This corruptible must put on incorruption Paul said So we will no longer procreate But those who, who enter the kingdom In their physical bodies So remember when Christ comes back At the battle of Armageddon There will be basically two groups of people Alive on earth The sheep and the goats As he calls them The sheep are believers who have survived the tyranny of the Antichrist by hiding out in caves and hills, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, and uh, avoiding the mark of the beast. And the goats will be those who didn't believe the gospel and took the mark of the beast. And so the unbelievers, of course, are cast into the lake of fire. Uh, The uh, believers are the ones to whom Jesus says, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. So they enter the kingdom, unlike us, in their physical bodies. They will procreate, (laughs) though their offspring will help repopulate the earth after the incredible devastation of the seven-year tribulation. And uh, so we will see natural reproduction. And as I said, those uh, babies born during the millennium will need to be saved. So uh, Isaiah 65, great passage about the millennium, they shall not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. So clearly we see people being born during this time. Back to Ezekiel 36, I will increase their men like a flock. So natural reproduction, fruitful labor. Again, as the curse of sin is not yet removed during that time, it won't be removed until the old earth is utterly destroyed, Second Peter 3 and Revelation 20 but in 21, but nevertheless, in a time of perfect justice with no inequities, no unfairness, uh, we will see a much more time of fruitful labor. So, you know, if you're fixing that plumbing issue under the sink in the kitchen, it won't take four trips back to Home Depot to get all the things you should have gotten the previous trip, it'll be fixed, right? Uh, Fruitful labor. Uh, Isaiah 62, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength, surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies and the sons of the foreigner shall not drink your new wine for for which you have labored. But those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. So, you know, it's not going to be a socialism in the millennium. It's going to be capitalism. You're going to Work for what you get, and you're going to eat what you get, and it'll be fruitful. Uh, Isaiah 65, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Talking there specifically about Israel. Um, And then uh, we're going to see a universal language. Well, imagine that, right? Imagine that. Zephaniah the prophet said, Then I will restore to the peoples a pure language that they all may call on the name of the Lord. Remember, we didn't see the just the, uh, diversities of languages until after the flood, after Nimrod, and after the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And that's when God... Did that. But this is the Bible tells a story that comes full circle back to a pre fall Edenic state. And the closer we get to the recreation of the heavens and the earth, the closer we return to what it was like uh, in the beginning. So there'll be a universal language. Obviously, uh, when the Prince of Peace is on the throne, there will be no war or conflicts. Notice Isaiah two. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. I love that flowery way of basically saying you won't need uh, you won't need your weapons anymore. Now, Dean, what are we going to do with our cache of weapon, our cachet of weapons? I mean, we're not going to need it. That kind of concerns me. I don't know if I'm ready to let go of them. But it's because the mindset will be different then, right? Today, obviously, we, we've got to think about self-preservation, protection, uh, security, guarding our family, and so forth. But in the king, kingdom, we won't have to worry about that. We won't have to worry about that. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Amos put it this way, I will plant them in their land. no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord. So again, not only no wars and conflicts, but I kind of got ahead of myself in my little uh, analogy, but it'll be a peaceful society in general. It'll be a peaceful society. Remember uh, Isaiah 11, the wolf will lay down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Can you imagine a little child saying, come on leopard, (laughs) you know, come here. You want to kiss my cheek? You know, um, You know, you think about going to the zoo and they've got all these fences and windows, you know, six, eight inches thick of glass and all these protections. Why? Because those are wild animals, right? We've all heard stories of some unsuspecting person or child falling into a lion's, you know, display at the zoo or something like that or jumping in for some crazy reason and usually doesn't end well, but it'll be a time of peace, the cow and the bear shall graze. Uh, you know, farmers won't have to worry about coyotes getting their cattle. Uh, the young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Again, reverting back to the uh, Edenic state. Uh, going on, the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. Can you imagine such a thing? A little baby. You know, you're you're taking a, a walk and. With your little six-month-old baby in the stroller, and then, um, you know, you, you 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 take a break, and you say, "Hey, I'm going to put you right here by this cobra's pit, and I'll be right back, honey." And then you go, and you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry. Um, the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy at all my holy mountain. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As we talked about, and then of course a famous Christmas passage, Isaiah nine, unto us. A child is born unto us, a son is given. Um, That's the first advent in Bethlehem. But then the government will be upon his shoulder. Certainly that's not true today. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Not all governments are under the sovereign authority of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But notice his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, uh, there will be no end upon the throne of David over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. That's why on the chart that I showed a moment ago, we've got the kingdom going in perpetuity because so many of the references to the establishment of the kingdom make it clear that it will last uh, forever. For example, even going back to the announcement of Christ's birth to uh, Mary in Luke chapter 1, uh It says, uh, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And listen, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Has that happened? No, not unless you totally twist the scriptures into some giant metaphor and spiritualized interpretation. I mean, when God promised David an eternal son on his throne in Second in Samuel 7, the only context that David had of throne, temple, or house, as it was called then, and kingdom were literal. That's what he expected. And that's the same way Mary would have taken it. And he goes on, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. But uh, at that time there was an end. The kingdom of Rome was uh, controlling Israel. And, you know, the, the kingdom that, we, that is promised to Israel, going back all the way to Genesis 12, 2 Samuel 7, Jeremiah 31, and Genesis 15, is a global kingdom, not just a small little kingdom like they have today. So even though Israel became a nation again in 1948, that by no means fits the description of the unconditional promise that was made uh, in, in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah 32, we see that my people will dwell in peaceful habitation. And then uh, number seven under social is that we will see true and unprecedented justice. So you know this is why I, I really get so encouraged whenever I read the passages about the kingdom or teach about it or talk about it, because there's so much inequity and injustice in this world today. You know, the, the guilty go free innocent suffer and we just we our hearts cry out for justice uh, and we will see the fulfillment of that longing when uh, the just one uh, Jesus Christ himself takes the throne again the governments will be upon his shoulder uh, he will take the throne of David and rule over his kingdom and establish it with judgment and justice The justice will dwell in the wilderness In Psalm 2, that great messianic uh, psalm uh, that also uh, talks about the Luciferian conspiracy where the nations are conspiring together with Satan to take over the world. And God laughs at them, we read earlier in this psalm. But God says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. This is um, proleptic in the sense that It's making a statement as if it's happened that is guaranteed to happen in the future. And uh, this was written, of course, by David. We know that even though the psalm itself is anonymous, Acts uh, tells us that David wrote it. And so it was therefore roughly a thousand years before Christ and Messiah hadn't even come yet. So you know this is not speaking in real time. It's a prophecy. It's a messianic prophecy. And I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Boy, people have done all kinds of gymnastics with that verse, you know, trying to make it about the incarnation or the uh, eternal sonship of Christ or somehow Christ isn't eternal, you know. No, this, the, the fact that he was begotten it speaks to his kingship, that he's taken the throne. That was a very common way uh, in the Old Testament to speak of a succession in uh, the line, kingly line. Uh, watch. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. That's a symbol of justice. Um, and we see when Christ comes back in Revelation 19, same thing. I mean, powerful description. Behold, a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. The real deal, not the imposter that we saw in Revelation 6:1 on the white horse, the Antichrist. But the real deal, the King of, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and in righteousness, true righteousness, he judges and makes war. So no more of these manufactured wars and fake wars and wars that have mm-hmm. ulterior motives like the one we see happening now as they try to foment uh, World War III and drag the United States into it. Um, doesn't mean real people aren't getting you know, really killed and tragedies are happening, but it's not about what it's about. And if you follow the the state-run media's you know, propaganda about it, you know, Zelensky good, Putin bad, let's get in there and rescue Zelensky. We'll do a little research on Zelensky. That guy's a, you know, Satanist to the top top tier. Yeah? What does it mean when he, uh, he himself treads the winepress? I've heard that a lot, but I haven't heard an explanation. So that's a metaphor for God's wrath. And you see Old Testament prophets talking about it in the same way, but... Basically, it's this is the the culmination of the outpouring of God's wrath. The wrath begins in Revelation 6 at the beginning of the tribulation because the people are already crying out, "Hide us from the wrath of God." So, the the tribulation period. Let's see if I can grab this uh, slide. The tribulation period is referred to in the Old Testament as the Day of the Lord's Wrath. That's one you know description of it, or the Great Day of the Lord's Wrath. So. Wrath has both a theological context and a actual physical context. Theologically, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we become a child of God, John 1.12, and we're no longer uh, children of wrath. So Jesus said in John uh, 3.36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So everyone on earth is either a child of wrath or a child of God. And by faith, if you receive the free gift of eternal life from Jesus Christ, you become a child of God. But there's also a prophetic wrath, sort of the visible manifestation or culmination of the anger of Almighty God. You know, for 6,000 years now, he's been holding back that wrath holding it back, holding it back, and and His love and mercy have gone forth as the gospel is being spread, and people are coming to faith, and, you know, we sometimes shake our fist at heaven and say, you know, why is all this suffering happening, and why are all these guilty people going free? But the tribulation answers that objection, and it is the final outpouring of the wrath of God, and that's why Paul makes it clear that the church, the bride of Christ, won't be here during the wrath of God, because we're not under God's wrath. We've been Relieved from God's wrath. We're part of the children of God. So when it says, going back to this uh, verse, when it says that Jesus will tread the winepress of the wrath and fury of Almighty God, let me get back there. You know, it's funny. I moved all my charts as I was preparing for today to the end instead of earlier because I hadn't been really using them much. And then today I've had to go find them twice. So best laid plans. Um, So where are we Peaceful society, nope, let's see here. Is trading the wine press a term of judging itself? Was a wine press used in like that? Sure, yeah, I mean it was a cultural thing. Uh, there we go. So if you picture the wine press, you know, and, and squeezing the grapes and making the wine, this is the way Jesus is going to be the one that just, you know, uh, is the implement of God's wrath. You know, He comes with a sharp two-edged sword, to strike the nations. You know, this is a picture of Jesus you don't much see in our culture today. In this postmodern age, and this apostate age of the church, uh, it's all, you know, Jesus is a kinder, gentler, softer Jesus. Nobody really talks about the fact that he's going to strike dead anybody that doesn't take advantage of his free offer of eternal life. And by the way, those who spend eternity in hell have nobody to blame but themselves. God sends nobody to hell. God has done everything he can to make sure that nobody has to go to hell. He paid the penalty, shed the blood of His own Son. Jesus, as we talked about last week, willingly laid down His life to pay your penalty for sin. All you have to do, like any gift, is receive it. He doesn't force it upon anybody. That would be universalism. and forced love is no love at all. But He made the provision, and He offers to you freely the gift. That's why Revelation ends with, Whosoever will let him come drink of the water of life freely. So if He's offering a gift... He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. Uh, you know, come one, come all, whosoever will may come drink of the water of life. And it's a universal, bona fide offer. All someone has to do is receive it. How do you receive it? Well, in a physical realm, you receive a gift by clutching it with your hands. In Scripture, more than 160 times, the means or mechanism of receiving the gift is faith. Faith is the instrumental cause of regeneration. It's by faith alone in Christ alone that we receive that gift. The moment you place your faith in Jesus, then you pass from death to life, as Jesus said in John eight twenty four, and you shall never come into judgment. You become a child of God. So come to Jesus, that's the, that's the message. And if you don't, then you're gonna be left, as the great white throne judgment describes in Revelation 20, standing on your own merits, uh, trying to measure up to God's perfect, standard of perfection. Remember Jesus said in Matthew five you've gotta be perfect if you wanna get into heaven. And the only way to be perfect is to have Christ's perfect righteousness given to you as a gift. So if you don't receive that gift, if you reject it, you're on your own and we know how that ends. So, yeah, I just see this as a beautiful uh, description of that pivotal moment of, you know, this, uh, you know, wrath of God being, being poured out. And people downplay that. But that's what. The Revelation, by the way, chapter six to nineteen, the bulk of Revelation is all about the wrath of God, the tribulation period, and people just sweep that away, and like they do the other sixteen percent of Bible prophecy. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a quite a word picture there. I think. Anybody else? As we wrap up here, comments, questions. Um, we're going to get into spiritual characteristics next time. Uh, but any closing thoughts about anything we've talked about today on the social characteristics? Yeah. i just say, just as a, another illustration, you would never want to catch your finger in the wine press. <laughs> yeah. No, you wouldn't. Yeah. You would not want to catch your finger. Yeah, especially if you're not running it yourself. Yeah. You know. No, that's right. So that's that's very visual. We 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 like our wine post production. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, um, so. Uh, Awesome. So next week, don't forget, um, we won't live stream for those of you live streaming, but we will have our regular 9 o'clock hour. Mike Quinlan has offered to teach Sunday school next week. And then, uh, same thing, we won't live stream our worship service, but we will have worship service with a guest to speaker, Mike Huber, a great man of God. I know you'll appreciate hearing from him. Uh, and then this Wednesday, as we'll be traveling, no live stream, but we will have our regular midweek Bible study. And Mike Quinlan, again, is going to be filling in. He's got uh, some great uh, plans. I don't want to reveal them just yet because I want to give him the freedom to change his mind. And sometimes that happens to me the day before. I think, oh, I was going to do this, but I'll do something else. But if he uh, deals with the passage of Scripture that he's been talking about, I know you're going to be blessed. So with that, we'll take a break. Uh, We'll come back together in here for the start of our service at 10 o'clock. And then those of you live streaming, uh, typically it's around 1025 to 1030-ish, give or take, depending on how the service flows. But we will live stream when the message begins. All right. Awesome. Have a good break.